On Christmas Day, 1945, the Sauter family experienced one of the worst tragedies a parent could ever imagine. Their house caught on fire and five of their children were never seen again. Today, we'll discuss some theories on how this might not have been an accident, all the inconsistencies with the investigation, and why the Sauter family believes the children didn't perish in the fire. Next, on Technically a Conversation. you're listening to Technically a Conversation, a podcast where we share an interesting topic or story with each other and hope you find it interesting as well. I'm one half of your host, Jose, and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Isela. How are you doing today? Just like that. Spanish cleaning. Fabuloso. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) So quick reminder about our contest before we get started. If you enjoy our show, take two minutes to leave us a review. What should they do again, Isela? Pause this lovely podcast just for a quick moment. Go in and give us a favorable rating. Yay, please. And take a quick screenshot. Shoot that over to one of our socials. You'll get all the wonderful deets at www.technicallyaconversation.com. And good luck, everybody. That's right. And once we get your review, we'll read it on the show. And once we get 25 reviews, we'll do a drawing to give the winner a sexy technically a conversation t-shirt. And we are at 14 reviews now, so only 11 more to go. (laughs) Yes. And to those of you that have already left us a review, thank you. Thank you guys so much. And I am also doing fine, just in case you were wondering. I know you didn't ask, but just in case you're wondering. I know, I apologize. I know we jumped right on in. I was like, fabuloso. All right, hey. So how are you doing? Everything good? Yeah, everything's going okay. Good. Quick shout out to the queens, Elena and Erica, the Duke, Stephen B., and the ContraZoom Pod Podcast. Thank you for sharing our posts on your social media. Thank you, guys. Everything helps. With all that business out of the way, ready to get started? We are ready. Great. (laughs) Let's get started. (laughs) So, Isela, you like animals, right? They're generally pretty cute. Uh, Yeah, some like the cute furry ones. Yes, reptiles, mm, not so much. And if they have big ears like Snarf or Baby Yoda, they're especially cute, right? Oh, yes, we talked about this. Yes, absolutely. Would you consider Baby Yoda a person or an animal? Would you let it use the bathroom inside your house or would you keep it chained up to a tree like a dog? Uh, No dog should ever be chained up to a tree, first of all. (laughs) I want to call like... I want to call the animal control on you already, even though you don't even have a dog. Be like, keep an eye on this man, sir. <laughs> yeah, no, I would I would never chain up a dog to a tree either, but okay. I thought it would be funny. No, it's not. <laughs> I am pretty sure it's more closer to a person than an animal. Well, I guess we're animals, right? I mean, we're kind of like, we're animals too. Would you let it use the bathroom inside your house or would you let it go outside or have it go outside? I don't know what the excrements of Baby Yoda looks like. So (laughs) I really can't fully answer that question. (laughs) Okay. Just wondering. Sadly, our topic for today will not cover any of that. Oh, good. All right. 
But I had to lighten the mood because this is going to be a very dark topic. Oh. I never learn. <laughs> so, Isela, as a parent, what is one of your biggest fears? That something happens to my child that I cannot prevent. That's always the worst, something you can't prevent. Mm -hmm. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about a tragedy that sadly combines every parent's fears into one heartbreaking event. This is going to be like the Voltron of tragedies. Oh. It was Christmas Day, 1945, when George and Jenny Sauter were awakened by smoke going into their bedroom. Nine of their 10 kids were sleeping at the house. Their 10th and oldest child was away in the army. George, Jenny, and four of the children escaped and made it out okay, but the other five children were never seen again. George tried several times to go back into the house to look for his children, and while he was able to get into the downstairs of the home, he could never make it up the stairs, although it wasn't for a lack of trying. At first glance, it seems like an open and shut case. The five children perished in the fire, mm. except that there were no human remains, and the fire didn't burn hot enough or long enough to fully cremate the bones. What do you think could have happened? I think it's very possible they could have escaped, and if there was some type of child abuse with 10 kids, uh, I think they might have just said, all right, we'll take our chances alone. It's very possible. Yeah, that's my the eternal optimist in me. <laughs> like, they're still alive, <laughs> but they're like, fuck this game. <laughs> we'll see how long that optimism goes. Oh, jeez. Are you familiar at all with the case of the missing solder children? No. Okay, good. I had never heard of it until recently when I came upon the story on Reader's Digest. It's still a thing, if you can believe that. Yeah, I can. <laughs> still around. I don't know what I found more surprising, this story or that Reader's Digest still exists. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so let's go into the facts and see what conclusion, if any, we arrive at. Like all our episodes, links to all of our sources will be in the show notes. From a Smithsonian Magazine article titled, The Children Who Went Up in Smoke by Karen Abbott. The fire broke out in the Sauter home around 1 a.m. on Christmas Day. George, Jenny, 2-year-old Sylvia, 17-year-old Marion, 23-year-old John, and 16-year-old George Jr. all managed to escape safely from the fire. George Jr. and John only singed their hair while escaping the blaze. The Sauters figured the other children, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, were still upstairs. The staircase was engulfed in flames, so George Sr. wasn't able to go up them to look for the children, so he decided to go through the upstairs window. When he went for his ladder, which he always kept propped up against the house, it was missing. He had two trucks, so he had the idea of driving the trucks up against the house to climb on and reach the window, but neither one of the trucks would start. George later recalled that both trucks worked perfectly fine the day before. He had the idea of getting water from the rain barrel to clear a path, but the water was frozen solid. Oh, no. Their daughter, Marion, ran to the neighbors to call the fire department, but they couldn't get an operator on the line. Another neighbor who noticed the fire also tried calling from a nearby tavern and also had no luck. The neighbor hopped into his truck and drove into town to the fire chief's house. The fire department was only two and a half miles from the solder house, but the fire department did not show up until 8 a.m. Oh my God. Yeah, so keep in mind, the fire happened at 1 a.m. Right. By the time the fire department arrived, all they found was a smoking pile of ash. The Sodders assumed that the five children were dead, 
but a search of the grounds on Christmas Day found no human remains. The fire chief told the Sodders that the fire had not burned hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. A state police inspector attributed the fire to faulty wiring, and the coroner issued five death certificates before the end of the year. The cause of death on the death certificates was fire or suffocation. George covered the basement with five feet of dirt to preserve the site and act as a memorial. What are your thoughts now? I find that strange that he put things over it. I think, I don't know, I think as a parent, I would demand answers and faulty wiring. I mean, I guess sounds somewhat believable, but I don't know. But to put dirt on top seems a little sus. That part actually wasn't the part that I immediately thought was crazy. For me, I thought everything else was crazy because it seemed like everything that could go wrong went wrong from the missing ladder to both his trucks not starting to not being able to get an operator on the line. You know, I'm guessing this was back in the day before you would actually dial a number and you would have the operator connect all the calls. It was like, operator, get me the Fayetteville Fire Department on the double. We got ourselves an emergency, sweetheart. A real razzle-dazzle of a fire. I feel like that's how everybody spoke in those days, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think I combined like three or four accents, but <laughs> that's what I imagined it sounding like. Yeah, it was an amalg- <laughs> amalgamation of everything. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, the fire department not getting there until seven hours later. At that point, why even bother showing up unless you're bringing tamales and champurrado, being that it's Christmas? Who can think about food? <laughs> That's awful. The Sodders planted flowers in the space once occupied by their house and pretty much became a makeshift memorial. They never rebuilt their home. The more they got to talking, the more they started piecing together odd details of things that happened before the fire. And understandably, they were looking for patterns and trying to make sense of everything. But anything weird came into scrutiny. A few months before the tragedy, a man came to the solder home looking for work. Somehow he made his way to the fuse boxes at the back of the house and told George Sr. that they were going to cause a fire someday. George thought that was super strange since he had just had the fuse boxes checked by the local power company and they told him that everything was in fine condition. Another odd incident that stuck out in their mind was when an insurance salesman was over at the house trying to sell the family life insurance. When George told the salesman that he was not interested, the salesman told him, your goddamn house is going to be up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. That's really weird, right? Yeah, this is okay. The older Sauter sons also recalled the man parked along Highway 21, intently watching the younger kids as they came home from school. Could all these things be coincidences? Maybe. Now, this is the incident that struck me as the strangest. The day of the fire at about 12.30 a.m., Jenny had gone downstairs to answer a phone call. It was an unfamiliar voice asking for an unfamiliar person. She told her that they had the wrong number and hung up. By this time, the kids had already gone to bed after opening a few presents. But what struck her as being odd was that all the downstairs lights were still on, the curtains were open, and the front door was unlocked. So she turned everything off, closed the curtains, locked the door, and went to bed. As she started dozing off, she heard a loud bang on her roof and then a rolling noise. An hour later, she was awoken by the heavy smoke in her room. When I first read about the bang on the roof, at first I thought it could have been Santa coming to pay the Sodders a visit. <laughs> but unless Santa dropped his bottle of hooch and it rolled down the roof, I started thinking it maybe could have been a Molotov cocktail or something. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Okay, good. We're on the same page here. Right. So let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk a little more about some of the weird details of this case and a woman who recalled serving breakfast to the five missing children the day after the fire. This is Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies that just came out. I'm your host, Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Pierre. Pierre, what movie are we talking about today? Jeff, what are you talking about? We're recording an ad. Oh, is this an ad for Kicking It With Kendrick, the show where every week we bring on a different expert to talk about the filmography of Anna Kendrick? No, no, this is an ad for Losing It Over Leo, the show where we chronologically go through Leonardo DiCaprio's career from childhood to his Oscars. Are you entirely certain this isn't an ad for CML Classics, episodes of Classic Movies Live that we recorded two years ago? Well, I guess it's an ad for all four at this point. Well, you know what? That just works out because you can find all four of those over on the Heatwave Radio channel on Spotify. Nice. My name is Jamie. My name is Ryan. And we have a podcast called Stories, the True and the Fictional. We talk about stories in the movies. Stories in books. Stories from history. And stories from Crazy Joe down the street. But we also talk to the storytellers. The authors. The filmmakers. Everyday folk with a story to tell. If this sounds like your kind of thing, then check out Stories, the True and the Fictional on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. How was your break, Isela? It was lovely. How was yours? Good. Good. Did you throw any Molotov cocktails at any roofs during the break? I was picking out the house. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> right. so let's talk a little bit about George Sr. and the life insurance salesman. So George was a pretty outspoken man and didn't hide his dislike for Italian dictator Mussolini. He would often engage in heated arguments with other members of the Italian community. So at the time, he didn't take the threats from the insurance salesman seriously. Something that was strange was that as outspoken as George was, there were a few things that he never spoke about. George had immigrated from Italy in 1908 when he was 13 years old. An older brother accompanied him to Ellis Island, but immediately returned to Italy, leaving George on his own at 13. That's sad. <laughs> I know. He was reluctant to talk about his youth and what happened in Italy to make him want to leave. He also changed his name. He was born Giorgio Sodu and now went by the name of George Sauter. And I thought that was kind of strange because if I immigrated to Italy from the US, I feel like that would become my identity and that would be all I would talk about. Oh, there goes Jose again talking about why he left the US. This is going to be a long story. So on second thought, I will take another beer. <laughs> so much for making it home in time to watch Lamu, La Ragaza de lo Espacio. <laughs> I would imagine that he must have been escaping something in his childhood that was bringing him shame to 
his name. It must have been something in his family. Obviously, it was something in his family because he was so young. He was like, I'm done with that name, that family. I just want to start a new, you know, new canvas. Yeah. And sadly, he never talked about it. So who knows why he came here at 13. It seemed like his brother pretty much just like kicked him off of the boat and <laughs> went back to Italy. So that was kind of strange also. Yeah. The brother, there was not a lot of love. I mean, I guess he didn't let him travel alone. So that's kind of nice. But I don't know, leaving him still going back. That seems, ugh, that seems kind of fucked up. I agree. Remember that phone call that Jenny got on Christmas Day? Mm -hmm. She was told by a telephone repairman that the phone line appeared to have been cut and had not been burned or melted. This brought another memory to Jenny's mind. The fire inspector had told the Sodders that the fire was a result of faulty wiring, but all the lights had been on downstairs an hour before the fire, so that didn't seem right. A witness later came forward saying that he had seen a man the day of the fire with a block and tackle on Sodder's property. A block and tackle was used for removing car engines. I'm guessing this is similar to what we know now as a cherry picker. So could this have been the reason neither one of George's trucks would start? Yeah, that makes sense. That's so strange. Just seems like there's so many weird things going on. They definitely left no stone unturned as far as leaving them an exit. Definitely. One of the days that the family was visiting the property, one of the daughters, Sylvia, found a hard rubber object in the yard. George said it looked like a napalm pineapple bomb that was used in warfare, which is oddly specific. Jenny started conducting her own experiments, setting various animal bones on fire. Each time she was left with a charred heap of bones. First of all, that's very disturbing and upsetting. And I have questions. Right. Yeah. But I'll dismiss them considering the circumstances. Right. I can see the curiosity where... It's all tying back to this family, but at the same time, I think somebody already made it clear, hey, we would have normally found bones and somebody just didn't trust their words. So she's like, oh yeah, let's see. <laughs> and just to confirm that, she actually spoke with an employee of a crematorium who told Jenny that even after burning a body for two hours, for 2000 degrees, bones still remain. The solder home was destroyed in 45 minutes. What's more... There were several household appliances that had been found in the rubble and were still identifiable. After the news made the local papers with the pictures of the five children, so did the sightings. There was one woman that claimed to have seen the children peering from a passing car while the fire was in progress. Whoa. There was a woman who worked at a tourist stop 50 miles west of Fayetteville that told the police that she saw the children and served them breakfast the morning after the fire. Oh, wow. There was another woman at a Charleston hotel that said she saw four of the five kids and were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian descent. They all stayed in a large room with several beds. When the woman tried to talk to the children, one of the men gave her a menacing look and began talking rapidly in Italian. They left the next morning. That's very curious. In 1947, George and Jenny sent a letter to the FBI asking for help. They received a reply back by none other than human shitstain J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, wow. He said that although he would love to help, this seemed like a local matter and didn't come within the investigative jurisdiction of the FBI. Jeez. But agreed to assist if local authorities asked for help. The Fayetteville Police and Fire Department declined the offer. <laughs> so since the FBI was a dead end, the Sodders decided to contact a private investigator 
named C.C. Tinsley for assistance. Remember the insurance salesman that threatened George? Mm -hmm. Tinsley discovered that he was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire an accident. <gasps> Tinsley also discovered that the fire chief had confided in some people that he found a heart in the ashes and had hid it in a dynamite box, since dynamite boxes are common, apparently. All right. <laughs> and buried it at the scene. Tinsley and the fire chief dug up the box and took it to a funeral director who examined it and determined that it was actually beef liver and had been untouched by the fire. The fire chief later confessed that he planted that there in the hopes that the Sodders would believe that it was human remains and satisfy the family enough to stop the investigation. It's kind of weird, right, that they're trying to get the family to stop the investigation. Yeah, it's definitely some kind of weird-ass inside job. The Sodders contracted Washington, D.C. pathologist Oscar B. Hunter to do a thorough investigation of the fire scene. Among random things you would expect to find in the remains of a fire, like coins and partially burned books, he also discovered some bones that appeared to be part of a vertebrae. The bones were sent to the Smithsonian Institute, which determined that the bones belonged to a 16 or 17-year-old. The oldest missing solder child was 14. The Smithsonian stated that though it was possible for a 14-year-old to show the skeletal maturation of a 16 or 17-year-old, it's highly unlikely. The vertebrae also showed no evidence that it had been exposed to fire. Oh, wow. No other bones were found on the site. Shady. Yeah. For a fire that only burned for about 45 minutes, you would expect to find full skeletal remains for all five children. The report from the Smithsonian prompted two Capitol hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, but the governor and state police superintendent told the Sodders that this was a lost cause and closed the case. The Sodders were underturned and erected a billboard along Route 16, offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children. This was later raised to 10000 The billboard did bring the family a couple of leads, and George traveled the country investigating each one. One led him to Texas, where a bar patron overheard a conversation about a Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Another led him to Florida, where someone claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny. Sadly, George would always return home empty-handed and without any answers. 1968 brought them their biggest lead. Jenny received an envelope addressed only to her with a picture of a man in his mid-twenties. The note that was with the picture claimed it was Louis Sauter. There was no return address on the letter, but the envelope was postmarked in Kentucky. The Sauters were convinced this was Louis, who was nine at the time of the disappearance. Once again, they hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky, but they never heard from the detective again. Oh. Fearing that if the Sauters published the letter or the name of the town the envelope was postmarked would bring harm to their son, they decided against it, but instead updated the photo on the billboard to the updated photo of Lewis. George died in 1969. Mm. According to the Encyclopedia of Unsolved Crimes by Michael Newton, the billboard hung from 1952 until Jenny's death in 1989 when it mysteriously came down. Oh, that's, that's so tragic. It's very sad. Yes. Sylvia Sauter, who was two years old at the time of the fire, sadly passed away on April 21st, 2021, at the age of 79. She was the only surviving Sauter child and continued the investigation, along with the Sauter grandchildren, until her dying day. The Sauters remained convinced that Maurice, 
Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty were kidnapped and did not die in that fire. So now that you have all the facts and all the details, do you have any theories or ideas of what might have happened? Any theories that you might have liked? So for sure, from all the <laughs> from all the weird serial killing and uh, you know all those shows that I watch, I know for sure that bones should have been found if it was only burning for forty five minutes. And I just find that really strange that all these measures were taken so they couldn't call for help, and everything can go up in flames. They put these fake decoy beef liver or whatever that, you know, because even even a heart would have been burned at least. But I don't know. I mean, it sounds very methodical and very well planned out. It sounds like it was definitely somebody with a connection to the police department, if not in the police department. Again, the Golden State Killer was also once a police officer. This is not unheard of. No, that is very true. I could see all of those things. And unfortunately, if they're kids, there's so much trafficking. It's it's heartbreaking. Well, I mean, this was like a 1945. So I don't think a lot of trafficking was happening at that time. But that kind of was where my mind was headed to, that it was some type of conspiracy. Because it seems so strange that you know the law enforcement was not very willing to help and almost were kind of discouraging them from helping by planning the beef liver, which is weird. Yes. And that's where I was going to end. I was like, well, you know, we have no evidence. It's one of those type of things that is just unsolved. There's nothing more to it. Mm -hmm. And then today I had like the weird idea about um, spontaneous self-combustion. Do you remember hearing about those stories when we were kids? Yes. It was, it was one of those things that was always on Unsolved Mysteries and Primer Impacto and all those weird shows. Right, right. But still parts of their body are still left. Well, I don't know if you know, but spontaneous self-combustion, it's pretty much been debunked. According to Britannica.com, there is usually always some type of external ignition source. Many times a cigarette, match, or electrical spark. The clothes soak up the melted fat and almost become a wick. This is appropriately known as the wick effect by forensic scientists. The remarkable thing about this is that oftentimes it would completely incinerate someone or only leave behind a leg or foot or something. And everything else would be intact. Like their bed would be intact, but the body would be completely gone. There would be no bones. Yeah, just like a pool of fat. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is just my theory. I didn't read this anywhere. But what I think happened is that while the fire only burned for 45 minutes, their clothes and bedding absorbed the melted fat and created a wick effect. It's also possible that the flames were no longer visible uh, after those 45 minutes, but there might have been embers that continued to burn like hot coals and completely devoured all signs of the bodies. With the home collapsing on itself and the embers continuing to burn for seven hours, I can see it not leaving any traces of bodies. I'm probably on a ton of FBI lists for even researching this stuff, <laughs> but I feel it's the scenario that requires the least amount of assumptions. I think that had the house not been reduced to ashes and had George not poured dirt over the site to serve as the memorial, there might have been bone fragments or ashes found when the Washington, D.C. pathologist Oscar B. Hunter went to do the investigation. But since pretty much everything was reduced to ash, how could you tell one ash from another unless you were highly trained? And I think that's probably why the police investigator and fire chief found nothing during their initial investigation. 
not to mention how incompetent and lazy they appeared to be. So I don't know. That's my theory. I just barely had this theory today. I didn't have a lot of time to look for evidence. Um, and again, um, I wouldn't be surprised if some people came and knocked at my door late at night or something. <laughs> yeah. You're the weirdo researching spontaneous combustion. <laughs> yeah. No, I went yeah. down a, a rabbit hole like, uh, how long do bodies have to burn for <laughs> so that they don't leave behind? They them? have to burn a long time. Yeah. They have to burn a real long time. That's why I don't, I don't know. I agree with you that once that the man had put dirt over the site, a lot of opportunities were gone. But I mean, I think a like a femur is still a femur. And I don't, if it only burned for 45 minutes, that's, that's definitely not enough. I mean, just like there was probably still whatever, a blender, a food processor, whatever it was that they still found. So yeah, I mean, that does nothing compared up against, you know, compared to like a, a bone, a femur, like the biggest bone in your body. I don't know. That's very, it's very curious for sure. And that was the same thing that I thought too. I was like, the crematoriums, they burn the bodies for two hours at 2000 degrees and they still have bones sometimes left behind. But then that's when I started thinking about the the whole spontaneous self-combustion thing where, <laughs> you know, I remember seeing pictures and stuff where there's nothing left. Like you would see like a random foot hanging out, but there would be no bones, nothing. So I thought maybe that might've happened. Maybe their sheets and their clothes soaked up their melted fat and just cause them to burn up. Well, if they were already in a fire, I mean, they they would have been on fire anyway. Right, right. That, uh, what I meant is like it would have caused them to just like flare up and leave nothing behind. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I misspoke. No, no, you know, you're fine. You're fine. Um, yeah, that's it's pretty wild. I, I've read up on spontaneous combustion too and I found it very interesting just because if it's so weird I was like is this has anybody proven it like wrong or right or whatever but I mean obviously I only it was a very light reading light reading that's funny <laughs> it was <laughs> that's just kind of the stuff I read before I go to bed I'm just kidding anyway people think I'm crazy I'm sure <laughs> no I, I know that it has been debunked there usually always is an external ignition source. Most of the times it's cigarettes. Interesting. People smoking in bed. Well, oh my God. Why do people smoke? That's crazy. When I was young and fun, I used to smoke in bed. <laughs> and dangerous. That seems <laughs> so, it just seems illogical. Why do you want ember? Oh man. I thought that was another reason why people would smoke outside of their house because you know, they're on their porch and it's concrete or it's it's not a shag carpet that just in case something, you know what I mean? And then everything goes up in flames. But, you know, obviously later on I came to find out, oh, no, they want to keep the inside smelling nice. I'm like, really? Wow. I thought for sure it was they were trying to be safe. No, yeah. And you're right. I had a lot of friends and family that wouldn't want you to smoke inside the house. So we would just pretty much spend the whole time outside smoking because... We couldn't smoke inside. But it wasn't more so because they were thinking about not catching fire, right? It was more like a smell scent thing. Yeah, it's more about the smell. See, that's funny. I would have thought, oh, first thing you're thinking is like safety first or whatever. Obviously, it's like safety third. <laughs> yeah, because even now that I don't smoke, if I have people over, especially if it's like family or close friends, I let them smoke inside. And yeah, the smell will stay in the house for like, maybe like two or three days, which I'm 
not a fan of, but I mean, I guess it's not that big of a deal. I know that it's not going to be permanent. Right. You're being a hospitable host. Yeah. But would I rather not have that smell in my house for two or three days? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's really awful. But obviously the the parents don't sound like they were in on the whatever the scam was or, you know, the plan because they kept dishing out money to everybody and going everywhere to, I mean, you know, a parent's going to go to the ends of the earth to find their child. So I can understand that. But it, it clearly s- signaled to me that he was not in on whatever kind of scheme was going on. Yeah, no, I don't think the family were trying to cover anything up. Honestly, I think it was a tragedy. It's awful what happened, but I just think they didn't survive the the fire. Hmm. I don't know. Something had to have been left behind, I would imagine. But you're right. It could have been buried underneath the stupid memorial. Why did he make the stupid memorial? That was one thing that, um, whether it's good or bad, you kind of instinctively trust law enforcement and, you know, officials. You trust that they know what they're doing. And I don't feel like this uh, police chief and fire chief were competent. And I think that even if they had seen bones there, they probably wouldn't even know what they were looking at. That's super awful. So in a way, I kind of don't blame George because I think that he innately trusted them. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until he kept on running all these weird scenarios in his mind that, you know, he kind of had some doubts and said, well, I just want to be sure there's nothing there. Um, so let me hire a Washington, D.C. pathologist. And, you know, even like the FBI was like, you know, catch me outside with that. You know, like they didn't even want to help out. And, you know, even when they said, well, we'll help if the local authorities ask for it. And right away they said no. That seemed very weird. And that made me lose confidence in them. Yeah. Well, which is why I was thinking it's got to be somebody that either inside, right? Like a inside job, a cop himself or, or herself, right? I don't want to just say it's always a man. Or it was someone that was very tightly connected to, you know, that department, that, that police department. Or Mussolini. I don't think it was that at all. <laughs> His reach cannot be that far. I, I, I highly doubt it. I mean, sure, I'm sure people were like unhappy about it, but that's a far reach. No, I, I agree. I just threw that out as a joke. Yeah, no, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> On that high note, we hope that you enjoyed the show. And you join us again next week. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, tell a friend, and subscribe wherever fine podcasts are sold. Follow us on the socials at GreetingsTAC, email us at GreetingsTAC at gmail.com, or leave us a voicemail at 915-317-6669 if you have a story to share with us. You have something to share, Isela? I always have something to share. Usually candies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm on my way? Yeah, yeah. Good.